morning, the grace and mercy that you have shown us through Jesus Christ. We are thankful that he is the Holy One, and because of it, he is the Worthy One. We trust that everything that we say and do here this morning will bring glory to that worthy name. Thank you for these moments to come together to worship and now to focus our attention on your word. And our prayer is singular. Speak to us, Father. Speak to us today by your word, through the Spirit, that we may learn, that we may grow, that we may understand your faithfulness in a deeper way today that our reliance on you would expand, that we would know and be reminded that you alone are God. Thank you for these moments. Quiet our hearts. Free us from distraction as we listen for your voice today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, folks. You can be seated. This may sound like kind of a strange thing to say at the beginning of my message this morning, but it'll make sense in a second. But uh, a lot of you still, even though I know not all of you have known me for 16 years, but I've been here for 16 years, and a lot of you still seem a little bit murky on my nationality. I am an American. I come from the United States of America, okay? I was born here in Maine, like many of you. But my wife is Canadian. Yes, Tim and Pam are also Canadian. Just because those three are doesn't mean that I am, okay? Just so you know. I did live over there for a few years in my teenage years and early 20s. And part of the reason for that is because my mother is Canadian. So I know I'm really not clearing this up for you this morning, but my mother is Canadian, my wife is Canadian and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. But my mom grew up in New Brunswick in the same town that she and my dad still live in, the town that Melody and Tim grew up in as well. And rural New Brunswick, some of you don't know this, but rural New Brunswick is a lot like rural Maine. Uh, the border, you cross the border, yes, but once you get across, it's hard to tell the difference. It's an agricultural economy, and that part of the province that my mom grew up in, and she grew up on a dairy farm. My grandfather was a farmer, and he was the old-fashioned kind of farmer, not the kind now that have the air-conditioned dual-wheel tractors that, you know, and 2,000 acres of potatoes or grain or whatever. He was an old-fashioned farmer. Small dairy farm, a few cows that he milked. They raised some steers for meat. They had chickens. He had some potatoes, some corn, some barley, some oats, and, of course, lots of hay for the animals. Just an old-fashioned farm. And some years were really good, and some years were not so good. And if you have any experience in farming or maybe even just your gardening experience, you know that there's a lot of factors that go into that. If there's enough rain or if we have a really dry summer. Or if we have a lot of damaging storms that cause problems with the crops in the field in the summer. Or having good harvest days in the late summer or the fall. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. So growing up on this farm, my mom and and my grandparents and their family had good years and bad years. But God provided for them and they raised a family of 10 kids on that little dairy farm. 
And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about the passage of Scripture I want to share with you this morning, and I thought about how blind we have become to God's faithfulness. How blind we have become to God's gracious care of us in this age in which we live, because our hearts and minds in this culture are set on bigger and better, aren't they? Nod your head if you think that I'm right. Nod your head even if you're not sure. It encourages me to keep going, okay? We tend to think bigger and better, don't we? What happens when a couple gets married and they move into that little one-bedroom apartment that's 400 square feet or whatever it is? What do they think? Well, we're just starting out, right? And even sometimes people buy a house and they say, this is our what? This is our starter house. And this is our hand-me-down furniture that we're going to replace with new furniture. And we have a car, but we want a newer car. We have an income and we want a bigger income. We have a home, we want a nicer one. It's just the way that our minds work, bigger and better. So much so that we always dismiss sufficient And the reality is that bigger and better doesn't always happen. Now, most of you have lived enough life to know that. You realize that. It's not always bigger and better. Well, this is week 11 of the whole story, our journey through all 66 books of the Bible, and we find ourselves in 1 Kings. And what we're doing as we walk through this, if you're new to the study, if you're not, and you remember all the things that we say every week, then you can tune out for two minutes. If you don't remember everything that we say every week, then you better pay attention. This is the whole story. The Bible is the story of God redeeming a people for himself and bringing glory to his name by doing that. And we're also seeing in all of these books that God is revealing his character to us. He's showing us things about himself. He wants us to know who he is. And we're also seeing Jesus Christ as we walk through the word of God. We're seeing that Jesus Christ is shown in pictures and in prophecies. We see him very clearly, even before he has come to this earth. And in 1 Kings... Israel has continued her wicked ways. Now already, we're only in in book 11 of 39 in the Old Testament. Then there's another 27 to go once we get to the New Testament. And already, how many times have we seen Israel turn her back on God? How many times have we seen Israel turn and walk the other direction and and do their own thing? But this morning, as we look at 1 Kings, we're going to see his care and provision and protection for those who trust him. This is what I want you to understand as we go through here, folks. Understand that even in wicked times, even when we look out and we see nothing but wickedness all around us, God preserves a remnant of people for himself. There has never been one moment In all of human civilization, since the Garden of Eden, there's never been one moment, despite all of the wickedness, that there hasn't been a people called by God's name. A people who love him. A people who serve him. 
God always preserves a remnant, even when it isn't easy. And there are some very important lessons for us here this morning. Here's our big idea that I want you to just put in your mind for the next few minutes, that God always provides for those who walk with him. God always provides for those who walk with him. Now, 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm going to read a few verses for you. Let's jump right in, and then we'll draw some things out that are important for us to notice. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, who was the king of Israel at that time, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, let's take a little straw poll here. How many people have heard of Elijah? You've heard of Elijah? Okay, all right. Most of you have heard of Elijah. Elijah is a, he is a major prophet in the Old Testament. This is the very first time we hear him mentioned. Now, something that's interesting about Elijah, at least it's interesting to me, and I'm up here and you're there, so I'm going to tell you, and hopefully it's interesting to you, but... We don't know anything about Elijah. We have no idea who this guy is. We only know that he's from someplace called Tishbe. That's all we know. But his name means the Lord is God. And so we see Elijah coming onto the scene. He is a man of God. God is using him here, and he makes this very bold and potentially very dangerous to him, prophecy. It's not going to rain. Not even going to be any dew. It's over. Because God has said it so. Now, we didn't look at these passages when we were in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but if you had read through those, you would have seen that God actually specifically told the people of Israel... If you follow other gods, I will take the rain away. He actually promised that specific thing, that he would withhold the rain. And so Israel had walked away. Remember, we've seen, haven't we, many, many times they walked away from him when they came out of the land of Egypt. Remember, that's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They actually got to the promised land, had one battle, walked away from him again repented, God brought him back, he gave him victory, he gave him the whole land. We get into the book of Judges, what happens? Time and time again, they turn away from God. So God said, that's it. I'm withholding the rain. It's done. Now, we don't read this here, but there's a parallel passage or a related passage over in the book of James, chapter 5, that tells us it actually didn't rain for three and a half years. I don't know about you guys, but that's a pretty severe drought. I mean, it didn't rain for two weeks back in June, and my lawn was brown. Imagine three and a half years of no rain because of Israel's unfaithfulness. Just to give you a little bit of context, it's been 100 years since last week. Remember last week, King David, I want to build you a house. And God said, you're not building me a house, but I'm building you a house. I'm going to establish your kingdom for eternity. And we saw that that was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It's been a hundred years since that happened, since King David, and it has not gone very well. 
If you were to read the rest of 2 Samuel and you were to start reading the first 16 chapters of 1 Kings, you would find out that many of the kings of Israel have been evil. And 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that King Ahab was the most evil one to date. They were all one-upping each other. Every king was more evil than the king before him. Now, some of you, I bet, have heard of Ahab's wife. King Ahab and queen, anybody know what her name was? Jezebel. Queen Jezebel. And Jezebel and Ahab led the nation of Israel into Baal worship. That was the name of the god that they worshipped, B-A-A-L, Baal. Now, here's something very interesting about the idol Baal. Baal was called the god of the storm. And Baal was the one who supposedly controlled the rain. And so this is a deliberate act of God here to show the nation of Israel, it's not Baal that's controlling things. It's not Baal that is sending you the rain so that your crops will grow. It's me. And so God deliberately flies in the face of that to let them know who is really in control. Okay, enough background. 1 Kings 17, 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, again, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. Now, four times in the few verses we're going to read, it says the word of the Lord. Elijah was wholly dependent upon God for direction. And Elijah goes into the throne room. I mean, he goes to King Ahab, the most powerful person in the land, and says, because of your wickedness, there's not going to be any rain. That's a dangerous thing to say to a wicked king. Because God said so. And so God came to Elijah a second time. He says, you better get out of there. Get out of there. And I want you to go to this brook east of the Jordan. Now, actually, the brook Cherith, nobody knows where that is. It was so small, it's not on any maps. All that we can imagine is that it was a little runoff that maybe had water in it in the rainy season and dried up in the dry season. But God said, that's where I want you to go. Verse 4. God's still speaking. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So we went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. So this is where you're going to get your water, Elijah. We all know that you can't survive very many days without water. And so you're going to get your water out of here from this little brook. Now, Elijah immediately had to be thinking, well, this isn't going to last long because Cherith dries up every year. And it's not raining, but anyway, this is where I'm going to drink. And the ravens are going to feed you. Now, this is where it kind of gets interesting to me because ravens eat dead animals, right? I mean, everybody knows that. All you got to do is open your eye. Please open your eyes when you're driving down the road or the highway because there are ravens everywhere. And what are they doing? They're cleaning up all the dead animals, all the roadkill. Ravens eat Carrion is the proper polite name for it. They eat dead, rotting animals. So there would be no five-star dining for Elijah alongside the brook Cherith as he camped there. But he would survive, and it was food. And this is what I want you to notice. It says, God said, I have commanded the ravens to do this. The word commanded means to appoint or to charge, and this is what we need to see. 
that in the middle of devastating circumstances, God was miraculously providing for Elijah. God determined that this would happen. He said, this is the way that it's going to work. This is what I'm going to do. He prepared it. He decided it. It was no accident. It was not by chance. Elijah didn't go to the brook and see a raven picking at a groundhog carcass and decide to go over there and rip off a ribeye. I don't know if groundhogs have ribeyes, but that's not it. It wasn't by chance. The ravens came, and they brought Elijah the food. So what did Elijah do? He listened. Verse 6, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So what happened? Exactly what God said happened. What God intended, what he purposed, and it lasted, I want you to notice in this next verse, just as long as God intended for it to happen. Verse 7, After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So inevitably the brook dried up. I mean, who didn't see this coming? We knew it was going to happen. We knew Cherith was going to dry up. Everything was drying up because there was no rain. Why was there no rain? Because God said there was not going to be any rain. But still, God was caring for Elijah. What happened next? God spoke again. This is what I'm doing to prepare and to provide for you. And he told him to go to Zarephath. Now, if your Middle Eastern geography is about like mine, you have no idea where Zarephath is, but Zarephath is a long ways from where Elijah was. It's all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea, and in fact, it's not even in the nation of Israel. It's out of the country. But what it is, or what it was, it was the center of Baal worship. It wasn't just a place that worshipped Baal. It was the central Baal worship place in the civilized world. So God called Elijah into even more dangerous territory. It was bad enough that he was in Israel where Ahab and Jezebel were in power and they were evil and they were commanding the people to worship Baal and everybody was going for it. Everybody was just diving in and doing what they weren't supposed to do. Now he says, Elijah, I want you to go here, the center of Baal worship. And he said, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, this word commanded is the same one that we saw in verse 4. That means God appointed it. He purposed it. He prepared it. God had planned for this widow to feed Elijah, just like he planned for the ravens. And I know it doesn't look like this when you're reading it, but this widow providing for Elijah was almost as unlikely as the ravens doing it. Because in this culture, widows were, were destitute. In many places, they weren't even allowed to work. We found out that she had a family. Later, we learned that she had a son. But she had no income. And there was a drought. And so she was even more desperate. And we learned just how desperate she was if we read those verses. Because when Elijah goes to Zarephath, and God leads him to this widow. Their paths cross at just the place God intended for it to cross. And Elijah says, God has asked me 
to ask you to make me a meal, you know what the widow said? said, sir, I can't, I can't do that. She said, I'm gathering twigs to make a fire. I'm going to make one last meal for myself and my son, and then we're going to die. That's how desperate they were. They didn't have anything. And Elijah says, cook me a meal first. Now, I don't know about you guys, how many times, some of you have read this passage before, probably. I don't know about you, but at first glance, that doesn't seem very um, <coughs> gracious of Elijah, does it? A widow and her son, and th- her plan is, I'm going to make a meal, and then we're going to starve to death. And Elijah says, well, here's the thing. Why don't you make me a meal first? Not very gentlemanly. Why does he do that? Because God told him to, first of all, and also because God has promised, and Elijah tells her this, God has promised her if she would make Elijah a meal first, then she would not run out of food for herself and her son and Elijah on top of it until the rains come. What a step of faith for this woman. This would be like you and I on our way to Hannaford with our last $10 bill to get some ramen noodles to make one last meal because that's all we can afford and then we're out of food. It would be like us going with our last $10 to do that and someone comes to us and says, I desperately need you to make me a meal. What a step of faith for this woman. This is what she was doing. She was risking everything. Verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. God miraculously made it last for all of them. Why did the flour last? Why did the oil last? Why did it? Because God said that it would. Because God determined that that is how he was going to provide for Elijah and how he was going to provide for this woman and her son. He purposed it. He determined it. I want you to see this. That in the middle of this pagan culture, In extremely devastating circumstances, God provided the needs of those who trusted him. Now, guess where I'm going to go with this to apply this to us? The exact same thing. Friends, God will always provide for you when you walk with him. As Holly shared with us just a few minutes ago, How do you pay out your year's salary and medical bills and still have money to pay your other bills? I've sat on cash before. It does not multiply by itself. I put it in dark places. I've buried it in the ground. I've watered and fertilized it. It doesn't multiply. It doesn't grow. How is that possible? It's only possible because God provides for those who walk with him. He promises that we will have what we need 
to do what God has called us to do. Now, hear me. This does not always mean that you will have abundance or luxury. How many times in our lives, when we think about the things we don't have, when we complain about the things that we don't have, how many times are they the needs of the day so that we can continue to the next day? Or are they the luxuries that we want over and above what we already have? We will have what we need to do what God has called us to do. God is revealing his character to us. He is revealing to us that he is the provider for all of those who trust him. In Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, who has one son, Isaac, the son, the son that's the fulfillment of all God's promises to him, he says, Abraham, take that son and sacrifice him to me. How much sense does that make? Abraham had to be thinking, I can't do that, God. This is the guy. This is the kid. This is the son. Without him, there's no promise. But he goes. He shows his willingness to sacrifice his son. And what does God do? God provides a ram to sacrifice. Abraham builds an altar. He offers the ram with Isaac as a sacrifice to the Almighty God. And he makes a memorial there. And do you know what? Abraham names the place. Do you know what he named the place? He named it Jehovah-Jireh. Do you know what Jehovah-Jireh means? It means the God who provides. God is the provider. And this is a lesson that we need to learn today. We live very comfortable lives. And our idea of need is skewed because God doesn't provide us luxury but he promises us that our needs will be met. And my friends, I want you to know this. We don't talk about this in our culture, but we need to. Even that is limited. God promises to provide our needs, but even that is limited. Do you know what it's limited by? It's limited by the time that our the moment that our time on earth is done. God doesn't even promise to provide these needs in perpetuity on this earth. He says, I will provide you what you need for as long as you need it. When you don't need it anymore, I will not provide it for you because I am the one who determines your life. Of course, we've lost our dear friend Jeff in the last couple of weeks. Jeff is 52 years old. Three weeks ago, I turned 50, and I'm thinking, 52 is a lot younger than it seemed 25 years ago. 52 years old. I thought God was going to provide for us. I thought he would care for us. I thought he would give us the health and the strength that we need. God did fulfill that promise to Jeff. He gave him the health and strength that he needed until the day that his life was over. Because God is the one who determines our days, who measures our steps, who gives us what we need based on what he determines that we need. We don't talk about that, do we? Well, God's going to provide. We're going to have everything that we need. Yes, we will. Until we don't need it anymore. By God's determination. When we misunderstand this, we accuse God, we doubt God, we blame God, we turn away from God. I bet some of you have done it. You've said, I need this and I don't have it. God, why are you doing this? We blame him. 
we need to understand something, folks. This dark time in our country may get darker. It may get darker. Now, I'm like you. I'm watching everything that's going on, and I'm saying, Lord, please, please work in this country. Turn things around. I'm praying that, and I hope you're praying that. It's right that we should, 2 Chronicles 7.14. We are commanded to pray for our country, and we should do that. But there is no promise in God's word that we will be spared difficulty. In fact, there are promises that we won't be spared difficulty. We've looked at them before. But like Elijah, God promises us that we will have what we need for as long as we need it. And then what? Well, friends, and then we turn to verses like John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, when God tells the woman, Jesus tells the woman at the well, what does he tell her? He says, I will give you living water and you'll never be thirsty again. You don't have to depend on this brook that's going to dry up because I'm going to give you living water and you'll never be thirsty. And then in John chapter 6, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life and you'll never be hungry again. Jesus Christ is seen here in 1 Kings as well as your ultimate provision, not just for this life, but for all of eternity. My friends, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you one thing, one hope that I cling to every single day, and that is when my food and water is gone and my strength is gone on this earth, I will be in the presence of God and I'll never be thirsty or hungry again. I'll never have another need again. In the presence of God, because that is his promise to us. If you're looking at your life right now and you're thinking, I don't have enough finances to last an indefinite amount of time. If you're thinking that, you're right. You don't. No one does. And God never intended for it to be that way. It is a shame for us how dependent we have become on what this world provides. Because what matters is eternity. What matters is eternity. You'll never be thirsty again. You'll never be hungry again. Because Jesus Christ is our provision. Is Christ enough? Is he enough for you? That's the lesson of 1 Kings 17. We're going to sing that song. And I beg you this morning, folks, don't just sing it. Think about it. Mean it. Is Christ enough? The Apostle Paul learned those lessons. That's why in Philippians 4 he said, I've learned to deal with wherever I am. If I have a lot, if I don't have much, I'm content. That's why in Philippians 1.21, Paul was able to say, to me, to live as Christ to die is gain. I had a teacher in Bible school who said this, it's not gain to die unless it's Christ to live. How are you living? That's what matters, friends. What's your perspective? Is it all about what this world provides or what Christ provides? That's the difference. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You are gracious. You have provided what we have needed. That is without doubt. Many things we have wanted but do not have.
Forgive us for focusing on those things. Cause us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the living water, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, the door, the way, the truth, and the life. He is our life. I pray that you will give us the grace and strength to live that way. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. Hope you have a great week.